Welcome to Messages and More, a podcast channel of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. This channel plays our weekly sermons and other content relevant to our church community. All right, well, good morning and welcome to Watertown Evangelical Free Church. I know uh, several of you probably have plans later today to watch some football game that's on, Um, but since none of the teams we care about are in it, I don't think anybody here really cares, uh, except except that you're probably gonna eat some good food. But whether you are gonna enjoy the game later today or not, we are glad you are here with us this morning to spend our, our Super Bowl Sunday morning uh, worshiping our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And uh, so we are glad you are here and we are gonna get started. So if you would join me in a word of prayer and then we will do some worship. So would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for this opportunity that we have as a body of believers to be together God, to join each other in worship of you, our King. And so, Lord, would you meet us here? Holy Spirit, would you come and fill this place with your presence, Lord, that we, God, we would encounter you in a new way this morning. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. Would you please stand and join us in worship? Well, good morning, church. Thank you, worship uh, team, for allowing to worship, allow to lead us to worship God this morning. Uh, We have a couple things going on uh, here in our church because our church is all about helping people find and follow Jesus. Not only for, the te- for, not only for a season, but for a lifetime. That's what we're all about here at Watertown Evangelical Free Church. And the first announcement we have is this Wednesday, we have Ash Wednesday, which will be during the mealtime at 6 o'clock. Bruce will start us off with uh, an Ash Wednesday kind of devotional kind of message. And there will still be food served from 6 to 6.30, but if you walk in the community room, that's where the Ash Wednesday service is. So if you walk in the main doors and you take a right and you just walk straight, you should reach the community room. We would love to see you there. Um, Ash Wednesday, this Wednesday, um, 6 to 6.30. Additionally, uh, this week we'll be sending out an email uh, to everyone on our email list. So if you are on our email list, you will get this email. What we want you to do uh, with that email is to uh, click on the link or click on whatever it says to click on, and you will update your personal information. And keep in mind, it is permanent. So once you change your email to uh, John Doe at gmail.com, it's permanently John Doe. So please put in the accurate information. We just want that because we want to connect with you guys. We want to get to know you guys better and get you involved in our church, in our community, so that we can help people find and follow Jesus for a lifetime. Also with that, if you are not, if you have unsubscribed to any of our email lists, I believe it has permanently unsubscribed you from anything. So if you have any problems of not getting the email or you don't receive the email, contact me, Bruce, or preferably contact Staff Assist. That's Alicia, uh, Staff Assist at wevfree.org. Additionally, we have a community lunch this Thursday. Bruce will be, uh, where are you at, Bruce? La Katrina. I probably could look at the screen. It probably says something. But we have a lunch at... 12, 12 o'clock, thank you. We lunch at 12 o'clock at La Katrina. Bruce will be there. Anyone is welcome. We hope we can fill up the whole restaurant with people from our church because that'd be an awesome opportunity to connect with people in our church and just continue to uh, grow as a church body and fellowship and just a community, just like the early church in Acts. Also, I, this isn't a slide up there, but I'm going to do my own little plug. Uh, this Wednesday, we have our Sweet Tarts Night uh, from 6.30 to 8.30. So if you're, part, if you're a student, middle school to high school, so 6th to 12th grade, you're invited. Invite your friends. There's going to be food, fellowship, and fun. It's going to be an awesome time. I have some heart or some Valentine's Day themed games since it's the 14th. It should just be an awesome Wednesday night because Ash Wednesday uh, to a youth group, Awana, and B- adult Bible studies. Uh, so now I'm going to pass off the mic to Ed, Mr. Hoseth, to lead us in praying to God this morning. Well, good morning again. If you weren't here when I was up here earlier, my name is Bruce Strugsma, and I am the senior pastor here at Watertown. And uh, welcome to those of you that are joining us online. Uh, for some of you that are out traveling, maybe homesick, or maybe this is just your... Uh, Best way of joining us, we're glad you are with us, uh, whether you're here in person or online. Uh, but this morning, we're going to be wrapping up a, a series on the book of Judges. And uh, I, I've been thoroughly enjoying this series, uh, going through the Judges. Now, part of that is because, and I don't know, I've been here over a year now, so if you haven't picked up on this, you know, I guess, spoiler alert or warning, however you want to take it, but uh, I like the Old Testament. I like spending time in the Old Testament. It's not one that... Uh, people commonly enjoy. 
Uh, in fact, in a lot of places, sometimes the Old Testament is seen kind of as, as less than, you know, and, and it's almost a misnomer, the Old Testament, you know, especially in today's day and age, we start to think of old things, you know, in terms of like software, software that is old, tends to slow down your system. It tends to bog it down. It tends to not work the way it's supposed to. We want the new, we want 2.0. Well, the New Testament is not God's word 2.0 and the Old Testament 1.0, the old version. Uh, Instead, it's a continuation. It's God's continual story. It's God moving from the very beginning, from the point where he created humanity and and where where mankind and Adam and Eve strayed. From that moment on, God has been about reconciling the world to himself. And we see that in the Old Testament as much as we do in the New Testament. It's a continuation of God's story. And in fact, Jesus states in Matthew 5, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And so God, from the moment sin entered the world, has been about the ministry of reconciliation, of bringing a people to himself. And, and as Luke shared earlier, we're coming up on a season in the church calendar called Lent, which is not a, a season in the church calendar that... Um, a lot of Protestant traditions, especially evangelical ones, tend to do a lot around, right? And so we, we, we hear this thing called Lent, and we're going to be doing a series this year, a Lenten series that I've titled Broken, where we're going to be looking at and preparing our hearts for Easter. Lent is the 40 days. It's, it's reminiscent of the 40 days Jesus spent in the wilderness, right? So it's these 40 days preparing for Easter and preparing for Good Friday and getting our hearts and our minds ready for the Lord. And as we talk about Jesus desiring reconciliation, ultimately we see that in the cross, in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ at Good Friday and Easter. And so we're seeing this pattern of God at work in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And by the way, for those of you that maybe Lent, the idea of Lent is a new, is a new thing, uh, and you might pull out your calendar and start counting on Ash Wednesday and realize that by the time we get to Easter, you're well over 40 days, right? Because you don't count the Sundays. So just throwing that out there. If you're counting, apparently in Lent, they don't count the Sundays, um, but it's 40 days, not counting Sundays, leading up to Good Friday and Easter. So just, I know there's going to be somebody out there that's going to go home and count and go, Bruce, this isn't 40 days. And since I screwed up Advent, it would be reasonable <laughs> to think that I screwed up Lent, um, fair. That's not what, you know, that's how you count it. And if you're, uh, if you have friends that are Catholic, they count it different. And that's a whole different thing that we're not going to get into. Um, but that's what it is. It's this idea of getting ready, getting ready in the same way we do with Advent, getting ready for Good Friday and Easter and preparing our hearts. So, um, that's what we're doing. And, and, and that's what God has been all about. And that's what I think is the beauty of spending time, not only in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. We see that continual story. But that's next week. This week, we are looking at Samuel, who is our last judge. And there again, some of you might be going, hey, time out, Bruce. Samuel is not in the book of Judges. Yep, fully aware. Uh, but he really is the last judge of Israel before they move into the time of the kings. After Samuel will become King Saul and David and Solomon and and so forth. So uh, we are actually finishing up the time of the judges and we will finish up the book of Judges as well this morning. So um, we are gonna be there as well. And if you've been following along in your Bible, you might notice that, you know, when we ended last week, um, there were a couple of chapters left. And so now I'm jumping ahead to 1 Samuel 1. Well, no, let's, let's look at those last last few chapters, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, which is actually quite a few. I'm going to try and summarize them with the same theme that we've had all the way through the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. The theme of Judges 17 to 21 is there was no king in Israel. And that isn't a call to elect a king. That isn't a call to if they only had a king, right? Uh, Their king was supposed to be God all the way through If you remember back when the book of Judges, when we started the series on Judges, we started with Joshua, who says, choose you this day whom you will serve. 
And so this call that there was no king in Israel is not trying to point out like if only they had had a king. No, no, it's really saying if only they had had Jesus Christ or God as their king. If only they'd had God as their king. And we're gonna see that throughout the book. And, and we've been using this phrase, in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that is taken from Judges 17. And it's the first time that phrase is actually used in the book of Judges. Now it's been a theme all the way through, implied, I've been making it overt. If you read the book of Judges, that theme is implied. And here in Judges 17 through 21, it's gonna be stated four times because the author doesn't want us to miss this, okay? They've been kind of setting the stage and now they're driving that point home. Israel is doing everything that is right in their own eyes. They're not serving God as their king. And so Judges 17 and 18 tells this story of Micah and his idols. And so Micah is, is a, a, a man who, who builds an idol and then begins to worship that idol instead of worshiping God. And so we'll read just a few verses here, Judges 17, verse 13. Now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. So Micah builds these idols and then he goes and recruits a Levite, somebody who is supposed to show honor and reverence to God. Somebody who's supposed to lead the people of Israel in worship of Yahweh God. He goes and recruits him and says, hey, why don't you come and work for me? Come live in my house, be my priest as I worship these idols I have made. That's what he does. He goes and recruits this Levite and says, hey, come, come and worship, lead my family in worship. And this Levite goes along with it. Now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. And after this, we'll see that the tribe of Dan, who one of the other recurring themes all the way through Judges is this idea of the people of Israel rebelling against God and falling into servitude and losing their land. Well, Dan never really got all of the land allotted to them. They never really conquered the land like God had told them to. And so now this tribe of Dan is wandering through and they come upon Micah's house and they see a, a Levite that they recognize and they see some, some golden idols and they're like, hey, you know what Dan needs? The tribe of Dan needs its own priest and idols. And they go and they steal Micah's idols and his priest. And the priest initially sees them stealing the idols out of the house. He's like, hey, what are you doing? And then Judges 18, verses 19 and 20, they answered him, be quiet. Don't say a word. Come with us and be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and clan in Israel as priest rather than just one man's household? The priest was very pleased. He took the ephod, the household gods and the idol, and went along with the people. And so we see this weird kind of disturbing story of a priest, a priest going wherever, wherever the pastures are greener. You know, he's very pleased. Oh, you know what, you're right. I would be a better priest if I served an entire tribe. You know, I'm gonna take these idols that are really false gods and I'm gonna come along and I'm gonna follow you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be your priest. And actually we see Micah come out and try and oppose them and they basically look at him and flex their muscles and he turns around and goes back. And they're like, hey, you know, you know, if you wanna come at us, come at us, but we're gonna defeat you. Just let us go in peace and take your idols and your, and your priest and he turns, turns around. And let me just remind you in those days, Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing this pattern just continue and it gets worse. And so we have that story that kind of stands by itself and you're kind of left going, what is going on in Israel? that people are, you know, the Levites are starting to worship false gods and they're going wherever they want and the people are stealing. It's not a good picture. And it gets worse. Judges 19 through 21 tells a very dark tale of a man and his concubine. And I wanna pause a little bit on that word concubine because as we get farther ahead in the scriptures, we'll see King Saul and David and Solomon all have concubines and they're kind of pseudo wives. They're more wives of treaties with foreign powers. And so there's, there's a specific technical term being used there. And that term really doesn't apply here in Judges. That's not really, in fact, you'll see that the, the man himself in this passage refers to her as a handmaiden. Um, at one point he refers to her as a wife, but it's in a derogatory manner. 
And so the, the purpose of all these terms being used in this story is to show that this guy doesn't see her as a being created in the image of God. He sees her as property. He sees her as a commodity. He sees her as a concubine or a handmaiden, as something that he owns. And it gives us another glimpse into when we dehumanize people, when we start to see God as ourselves, it's really easy to start to see other people as things we can treat like a commodity. And we're gonna see him treat this woman that way all the way through when he is supposed to treat her as his wife and as a human being created in the image of God. And he doesn't do that. And so don't get too focused on the concubine term. See it instead as a derogatory or pejorative term. And we're supposed to see in this story and what happens is he shows up in town and he's, his, his, his wife that he has treated poorly leaves him and goes and stays with her family. And he goes and gets her back and on their way back home stops in town and uh, instead of being invited into somebody's home, because again, there's, there's no hotels, there's no Marriott, uh, there's no Motel 6. Uh, instead of being, uh, going to a hotel, he's, you, you sit in the town square and, and the town, people are supposed to invite you into their home. And it doesn't happen and it doesn't happen. And finally somebody comes and says, what are you doing? And they're like, we're, we're waiting to, to find a place to live. He goes, well, you can't stay here. The not, they, they know this, this is not a safe place for you to stay which is really disturbing for an Israelite. It's not safe for me to stay with my people. And he finally says, okay, come home with me because you can't stay here. And we're gonna see a story play out that is reminiscent of Sodom and Gomorrah, where the people of the town come and knock on the door demanding that, that people be sent out for them to abuse and rape. It's very reminiscent of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a very disturbing and dark story. And, and why are these stories in there? And ultimately, the woman, the, 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 the woman ends up dying from this experience. And it, and it incites a civil war, and an entire tribe in Israel is virtually wiped out. Why is this story in there? Well, one, I think it shows us that, um, that, that Scripture isn't going to hide the dark and, and dirty parts. It's not just giving us a whitewashed version of history. This is what happened. It's hard to read. But again, back to God is still at work in broken places. But really, I, I, and I appreciated this, I read, I read a lot of books, trying to, and, and I can't come up with a great answer. Nobody can. Why is this in there? I, I can't give you a compelling answer. You go, oh. You know, there's no great moral at the end of the story. There's no bow I can tie on it and, and hand it to you and have you go, oh, that's why it's there. It's just hard to read. But in those days, Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And as one biblical scholar puts it, without this section, it would have been possible for Israel to claim that all their problems resulted from their being oppressed and influenced by outsiders. But here it is made very apparent that corruption, both spiritual and ethical, existed within Israel itself, independent of outside pressures. When people start to do whatever is right in their own eyes, stuff falls apart. And it's really easy for us even, as Christians, to blame all the outside influences. You know, the reason my marriage is in trouble is because of uh, me being let go from my job. Or the reason that we're in this situation is because my parents were jerks. Or the reason, you know, it's so easy to look and point the finger and blame and not take responsibility for our own actions. And Israel, it would have been really easy at this time to go, you know what, all the problems came because the Philistines or the Amorites or the, uh, you know, other groups of people, the other outside influences, they were the problem. And as we look at this story, we see that, no, no, the problem was in their heart all along. Because in those days, Israel had no king. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so why did this happen and what is our takeaway? Again, there's, there's, 
there's no good answer I can give you except that leaving God out of any equation is never gonna lead to a good answer or a good outcome. They left God out of the equation and it went bad. And in the midst of all that pain, we get these glimmers of hope in people like Ruth, where we see that even in the midst of all of that trauma and pain, there were people who were seeking the Lord. There were people who were pursuing God. There were people that despite Israel's sin and apostasy, there were people saying, no, no, I will choose this day whom I will serve. And we have the same choice before us. There are times where, like I said, it's easy to point the finger and go, it's out there, it's out there, it's out there. And, and yet, and this is one of the beauties of coming into a season like Lent, we are challenged in these moments to evaluate our own hearts and to repent and to look at the ways that we have brought sin and destruction into our lives because we have rejected God as king. Where have we taken God off of the throne? Or where, like, like Micah and Dan, where they treat God like a good luck charm? Now I have the idol and the priest, therefore I will succeed. And don't we kind of do the same thing? You know, God, I went to church, I did the Bible study, I got up and read my Bible every morning, therefore you have to do what I want. Where do we treat God like a good luck charm? As some genie that we can manipulate. And so again, we can fall into these same traps. And I hope we never experience the same outcomes they did, but anytime we take God out of the equation, we are risking significant pain and trauma. And our challenge here is, who is your king? And as we read through Judges, I hope we've been asking that question, who is my king? Or is my king myself, and I'm doing whatever is right in my own eyes. But like I said, there is hope. That's the bad news. That's where we're gonna leave Israel at the end of Judges. It doesn't end well. It's not a satisfying book. You get to the end and it ends with, now there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Close the book, we're done. And it's disturbing and it's sad, but we're supposed to keep reading into 1 Samuel because now the good news, because there was a king in Hannah's life. We're gonna see, like we did with Ruth, a glimmer of hope. We're gonna see somebody who is still pursuing God despite living in a completely spiritually apathetic and destructive community. We're gonna see somebody acknowledging God as king. And it's Hannah. And so we're going to enter the book of Samuel, uh, which starts with a focus on Samuel's parents and his mother Hannah specifically. And we see in the first chapter that Hannah is the favorite wife of a man who has two wives, which again, just because something is scripture does not mean it's something that is condoned by scripture. It's just the reality of that time. But he has two wives and he treats one as a favorite, but she is barren. She cannot have a child. Uh, But because of the favoritism, the woman with children is making life miserable for the woman without. And this is again a pattern that we've seen multiple times of people, hurt people hurting people. But God sees Hannah acknowledging him as king and God lifts her up. God lifts up a rural and barren woman. Seem familiar? Seems like a pattern that we've seen and will see again in scripture of somebody in hurt and pain being lifted up. 1 Samuel chapter one, verses three through 11. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Peninnah, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. And the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, 
If you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. And it's really clear in looking at that, that God is king in Hannah's life. Not Eli, the priest, not Elkanah, her husband, despite his comments, aren't I better than 10 sons? He might be, I don't know, but he's not better than God for Hannah. In her deep anguish, where does she turn? She turns to God. Now, it's kind of a condemning description of Israel that we're gonna see. We're gonna see that Hannah shows up and in deep anguish weeps and there Eli the priest sits and he assumes that she's drunk, which is a very condemning statement on the status of worship in Israel at the time. That the priest sitting at the doorpost is, is more apt to recognize a drunk person than a person in prayer. That's a disturbing image of where worship is in Israel at this time. But God doesn't see it the way man does. Eli sees a drunk person and condemns her for it. Now, she'll rebut that and, and, and he'll correct himself. Um, but where Eli, where man sees a drunk person, God sees a heart, a heart broken and desiring his intervention. Look at her heart. If only you will look, Hannah cries out. If only you will look on your servant, which reminds us of all the people who come to Jesus. If only you will heal me. God, only you can intervene in this. And, and the therefore statement of Hannah is not a then I will trust you or, or then I'll revere you or it's I will give you everything you entrust me with, God. I'm not desiring this to, to add to my own personal status or wealth or glory. God, I'm gonna give you my son. And, and here we see again a connection to the judges. This is a Nazarite vow she's making. I will dedicate my son to you in the same way Samson was. So is, is her son, if she has him, and we know that is Samuel. So the question is, will Samuel follow the same path as Samson or Gideon or Jephthah? Or is Samuel gonna be different? We're seeing an opportunity here for God once again to move. The question is, which way are we going? But I'd like to highlight one last thing from Hannah's prayer. Hannah prays the phrase, the Lord Almighty. That's a new phrase in scripture at this point in history. In fact, it, that phrase, the Lord Almighty, first appears in the book of Judges, or in the, in the book of 1 Samuel. Just a couple of verses before this, the author says the Lord Almighty for the first time in all of scripture. Prior to that, that phrase doesn't exist. And he's clearly referencing Hannah's prayer. So it's largely understood that Hannah is the first one in scripture to use this phrase, the Lord Almighty. And I loved how the theologian Robert Bergen stated it. Her pain had made her a theologian. How many of us in our pain have experienced God in a new way, have encountered a different side of God. In our hurt, in our pain, in our brokenness, all of a sudden we see God in a fresh way that others maybe don't see. Her pain had made her a theologian. She's the first one to cry out, God, you are almighty. You alone can fix this, Lord Almighty. What an encouraging reminder. And so we see Hannah has chosen a king. We also see that others haven't. We notice that Eli and his sons stand in contrast to Hannah. Eli doesn't recognize prayer at the temple. And Eli's sons do not serve the Lord as priests should. But instead they serve themselves. And they are again another connection. We just left Judges. And how were the priests acting in the book of Judges? Selfishly arrogantly. And we're going to see the same thing here with Eli's sons. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Eli's sons were scoundrels. I hope, I hope God's word never calls me a scoundrel. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. 
Now it was the practice of the priest that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. Now, I'm gonna pause there before I continue. That's, that's acceptable. If you read back in Leviticus, this is how the priests were supposed to get their portion. As the meat is being cooked, they're supposed to plunge this fork in and the Lord would provide what is, what is attached to the fork is their share, their portion. So that's, not a, that, that's just a statement there. And it, but it goes on. But even before the fat was burned, the priest servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I will take it by force. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. So the idea, if you've ever boiled meat, you know that eventually the meat starts to kind of disconnect. And so that was the idea is the fork plunges in and it takes some out, but it leaves some behind. What happens if you poke a giant fork into a big chunk of raw meat? You get the whole thing. That's what they were doing. They were coming along and saying, hey, before you sacrifice any of that to God, let me take it. And let me, let me take away the thing you are giving to God as a sacrifice. Let me get between you and God for my own selfish needs. And it's not so much that they were treating the sacrifice with contempt, which they were, but it's by default, you're then treating God with contempt. What God wants, what God needs is not important. And they stand not only in contrast to Hannah, but as our connector, like I said, to the book of Judges, because at the end of Judges, there are no heroes. There's no Samson, there's no Jephthah, there's no Gideon. In those last few stories, there's only victims. There's nobody standing up. There's only trauma. And we we're supposed to see Eli and his sons as a seamless connection. Judges ends with stories of spiritual ineptitude among the Levites, sexual misconduct at the temple, and Levitical involvement in tragic military encounters. And we're gonna see all of those things carry forward in Samuel. The Levites ignoring God's law, the Levites in engaging in sexual immorality, and the Levites, in their own arrogance, treating God as a good luck charm and taking Israel into fraudulent military encounters that end horribly. Samuel picks up the story right where Judges ends. And Eli and his sons are the example of the lack of godly headship. In those days, Israel had no king. And when God seems silent, some will turn deeper to the Lord. So where Hannah looks to God... Eli's sons look to themselves, which should beg the question, where are you looking when things seem to not go the way you want? Are you like Hannah, where in, in the pain and trauma of life, you look to your God and develop a new and deeper understanding of who God is? Or are you like Eli that steps back and says, you know what? I'm out. There is no God in my life but me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get what I can take out of this life and I'm gonna move on. Which one are we? And we should be asking ourselves that question. Which king are you seeking? Because you can only choose one. Which king are you seeking? Are you like Hannah or are you like Eli's sons? And we're seeing them in marked contrast. Two options, which king are you seeking? And one of the, our recurring statements in Judges, aside from there was no king in Israel, one of the other ones was again, Again, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And we got sick of hearing it again, 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 again. And now, finally, it's going to change. And we're going to hear, but Samuel, something has changed. God is doing something. We're moving forward. And, and while Israel will continue to sin, and while we might continue to sin in our lives, there's a but Samuel moment here. And for us, it's maybe a but God you know, I can continue to sin. I can continue to, to, to take the Lord off the throne, but God is good. But grace exists. So we see this but Samuel. 
I'm going to skip some sections here, specifically the birth of Samuel. There's a whole story in there, um, but we just don't have time to get into it this morning. So I'm going to jump ahead to verse 18 of 1 Samuel chapter 2. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife saying, may the Lord give you children by this woman to take place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. And I would encourage us that we have control of our attitudes and our behaviors. We can't control all of our life, right? We can't control what priests we might serve under. If you're a person in Israel at this time, if you're Hannah, you can't control the fact that Eli and his sons are not good priests and they're the ones in control of Israel's leadership. You can't control the fact that your, your country is under continual threat. You can't control the fact that you didn't have kids and, and you're... Your husband's other wife is taunting you. I hope that's a little bit of a stretch for us to imagine, but we can't control all of those things. Like Hannah, she can't control that. But she can control her attitude. She can control her actions. And so we'll see, again, two very different responses. We see in Samuel finally a break from the cycle of the judges. The situation hasn't changed, but some people have. Some people have learned. And again, in contrast, we're now going to see Eli's sons. And I'm going to back up to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 15. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. So we read that, and it's just a reminder. And then jump ahead to verse 22. Now Eli, who was very old heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So he said to them, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke. For it was the Lord's will to put them to death. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. Again, not a great picture. We see Eli's sons continuing, even with warning, to go down a dark, a dark path. And we see Samuel instead who on the surface grows up in the same setting. Eli takes him in as his son. Eli, who didn't do a great job with his sons, has taken on Samuel. Why the difference? The difference is, again, that repentant heart, that ability to be humble before the Lord. We'll see that, that what the difference is is a difference of the heart. Eli's sons are showing contempt for the Lord. Samuel is not. And at one point in time, it'll, it'll make a statement about, about Samuel not yet knowing the Lord and Eli's sons not knowing the Lord, which is a subtle but significant difference. It's about the heart. And Samuel later on will be reminded of this very fact when he goes and looks for a king to replace Saul. Later on in Samuel's life, he's going to go and, and God is going to reject Saul as king and he's going to go anoint somebody else. And God is going to remind Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The issue here is not only an issue of knowing the Lord, but an issue of the heart. Eli's sons on the outside have it all together. They're showing up at the temple. They're the leaders. They're doing the rituals but their heart isn't there. Their heart isn't in it. They're showing contempt for the Lord. And we can do some of that same things too. We can show up at church. We can pray for our meals. We can say, God bless you when somebody sneezes. All of those things are outward appearances. But if our heart isn't changed, we are showing contempt for the Lord. In the words of 1 Samuel, we can despise the Lord. In essence, Samuel, or Eli's sons are taking their priestly position, their portion before the Lord, instead of his. 
They're honoring themselves instead of theirs. And, and so we, we hear that they're condemned and, and we were troubled maybe by that statement that, that it was the Lord's will to put them to death as if God had created them with the sole purpose of killing them. But instead what we're seeing is that there's a point that they have crossed a line where God says at this point they need to be judged because what they're doing is causing so much harm. It is causing other people to stray from the Lord. There's a few times in scripture where we see God or, or scripture writers, in the, in the words of a friend, a pastor friend of mine, go nuclear with really, really harsh language. There's a few times, and it generally happens when somebody is getting in the way of other people experiencing God. That's when, pe- when God gets really mad. Think about Jesus overturning the tables in the temple. That's a moment that on its surface can seem out of character with who Jesus is. Here we have Jesus, this compassionate, loving, kind, and he's overturning these tables. Overturning the tables. Because the money changers were getting in between people and encountering God. That's what we're seeing here. We're seeing God get to the point where he goes, you are, are interceding, interposing yourself between me and my people, and I cannot tolerate it. They are despising the Lord. God must punish them for the sake of his name and for the sake of his gospel. And and if you look back in the passage, we see that because we can see it's the people who are calling it out. They're the ones that are crying out to Eli, and Eli goes to them, and and they do nothing. God must intervene on the behalf of his people because it is the Lord's will that no one should perish. But that desire goes not only for the oppressor, it also goes for the oppressed. And so the question maybe we should be asking ourselves is where are we, again, interceding for others versus interposing? Are there ways where our actions, our attitudes, our behaviors are getting between other people and encountering experiencing God? Or are we helping draw people to the Lord? It's a a challenging question that we should be asking. And we stand the same way without Christ. But now we have Christ, but as Paul says, while we have unlimited grace, we cannot take that grace for granted. Romans 6, verses one and two, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? We are called to a new way of living and and not only for our own sake, but for the sake of those around us. Yes, God will forgive us our sins, but we don't know the ramifications and the ripple effects of our sin and the spots where we might be putting barriers between people and God. Our, Our job is to tear those down. We must seek one king. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, Verse 26, and the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. Here's the difference. Eli and his sons show contempt. Samuel continues to grow. He might be immature, but he is continuing to grow. And do you recognize that phrase? One of the gospel writers is going to use that later about Jesus. And Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor. It's a pretty good parallel, I would say. Anytime you're compared with Jesus, it's a positive thing. So let's end Judges with Samuel, the final judge. Here we end. Here we end Judges, the final judge. The same way we started. Choose you this day whom you will serve. That's where we started Judges. We're going to end in the exact same spot with Samuel. Choose this day. Option A, doing what is right in our own eyes, or option B, seeking the Lord as king. Chapter three, verse one. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. The risk of complacency, the risk of silence, the risk of sitting there like Eli's sons, not hearing from the Lord and assuming that therefore God is dead instead of assuming that maybe there's something preventing us from hearing the Lord. We, we don't have a great picture 
of Israel at this time, but we see Eli and his sons moving to complacency and apathy, and we see Samuel not. When God seems silent, that's a time for us to dig in deeper. That's a time for us to wait patiently for the Lord. Eli and his sons are gonna miss out on hearing the Lord speak because they've decided it doesn't matter anymore. But for Samuel, we're gonna see the blessing of obedience. Verses seven through 10. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And so I'm picking up the story in case you don't know it, that, that Samuel has been laying in the temple sleeping and twice he's heard his name called and he's gone to Eli. Again, a sign of where the times are, Eli doesn't recognize the voice of the Lord either. And twice he says to Samuel, it wasn't me, go back to bed. And this is the third time. A third time the Lord called Samuel and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, go and lie down. And if he calls you say, speak Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there calling as at the other time, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, speak for your servant is listening. Eli and his sons missed this opportunity. They did not know the Lord, but they were also not listening. Eli has given up. His sons have given up. They've taken it on themselves. It's all about me. Samuel is still growing in the Lord and he might not be there yet. What we're seeing is immaturity in Samuel. But God is speaking and now Samuel knows what to listen for and he hears it. He's obedient first to Eli despite his struggles then ultimately to God. And when we choose to obey, we choose to experience and trust that God is at work even if we're not ready. And so from, Eli, or from Samuel, excuse me, we see the lessons and the blessing of obedience. And now for Eli's sons, we'll see the consequences for unrepentance. Chapter three, verses 11 through 18. And the Lord said to Samuel, see, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I, have, I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Samuel lay down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision, but Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son. Samuel answered, here I am. What was it he said to you? Eli asked. Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely. If you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, he is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. What a tough spot for Samuel. And what an, a missed opportunity for Eli. And while there are things to celebrate here, the fact that Eli calls it out and says, I don't care what God said, I don't care how uncomfortable it is, I wanna hear it. But also how sad his response. Well, there it is, not much I can do about it. Which is kind of the pattern all the way through. I'm not gonna really do anything about it. Let the Lord do what is good in his eyes. Eli is unrepentant of his role and his son's disobedience. And the sons have been unrepentant all the way through of their sins. And we all face consequences for our sins, but don't let yours go so long. Don't fall into apathy. Choose repentance and choose to repent quickly. We're gonna see throughout scripture time and again, people where that's the big distinction. It's not whether or not they make mistakes and sin, it's how they respond when confronted. How Saul responds when later when he's confronted by Samuel is to double down. You weren't here in time, Samuel. It's really your fault. When David is confronted by Nathan, his response is, I have sinned and maybe the Lord will relent if I repent. Choose repentance quickly. It's really hard later on. And the last word from Samuel this morning and from our series on Judges as a whole 
Verses 19 through 21, the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up. And he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. So we may be in the midst of chaos. You may be in the midst of trauma or pain. You may feel like in those days, America had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We may feel like we're in the time of the judges, but we have before us the same choice. Are we going to choose to be like Samuel, or are we going to be like Eli? Are we going to be like Gideon? Are we going to be like Jephthah? Are we going to be like Dan? Are we going to be like Micah and his idols? Every day we have the choice. Back to Joshua. Choose you this day. And so I commend us as a church, choose you this day whom you will serve. And I will also end with what Joshua did. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we look at these stories of chaos, God, of how you continue to be at work in broken places, Lord, help us to be repentant and humble. God, help us to choose this day whom we will serve. Lord, help us to see that no matter what we face, God, nothing is new to you. God, and you are in complete control. And so, Heavenly Father, we want to honor you as Lord and pursue you in your name. Amen. Before we end this morning, to continue our football theme, I'm going to call a little bit of an audible here. Um, if there's anybody who feels what this song is talking about, that God's love is crashing in on them like a hurricane, or maybe you feel like we talked about in Judges, that you're in a spot where you just feel like you need to reconnect with the Lord. I'd invite you to come up here and join me. And if any of the elders or Ed can join me up here as well, we'd love to pray for you. If, if you're seeking prayer this morning, come on up to the cross. Um, we'll have a couple of people, at least me, I'll be there um, to pray with you. And let's end this morning with this. From 2 Corinthians 13. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you for listening to Messages and More, a ministry of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. To find out more, visit us online at wevfree.org.